0: silence. Am I making a statement? Am I giving a command? Am I just pausing for effect? <laughs> we all have different ideas in our mind when we think of the word and the idea, silence. And today we're beginning a new series called Visitations. And I love the idea of the series, especially as we're approaching Christmas. It's the season of Advent And throughout this series, we're going to be looking at different visitations in the biblical text surrounding the Christmas story. And I don't want to give too much away about the upcoming weeks in our series, so I'm really just going to focus on our ideas for today, which is the first visitation in our series. But I also love the tagline of the series, uh, as shown on your bulletin cover, but also on the slide up there, silence is broken, silence In thinking about this, I I looked up some different ideas about silence itself, and uh, it can be a noun, it can be a verb, it can also be an interjection or a command, or as I already mentioned once, just sometimes it's used as a pause for effect. Um, And there's many familiar ideas about silence, uh, including some famous quotes that are out there, and perhaps some of these might sound familiar uh, from life or literature or history, and I jotted a couple of them down. Let's pause for a moment of silence. You have the right to remain silent. In literature, Sherlock Holmes once said to Watson, you have a grand gift for silence, Watson. It makes you a quite invaluable companion. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin said, as we must account for every idle word, so we must account for every idle silence. Abraham Lincoln is credited with saying, "'Tis better to be silent and thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. (laughs) Um, Muhammad Ali is credited with saying, silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. I much prefer silence is golden unless you have children, then silence is suspicious. Um, (laughs) I've got three kids and we can vouch for that, so... But today, as we begin this series, we're going to take a look at the first visitation of the Christmas story. Our text will be from Luke chapter 1. You can turn there or put your finger there or bookmark it on your tablet or phone or device, however you use the Bible. Um, And we're going to take a look at three main ideas from Luke's account of the first visitation. But before we delve into Luke chapter 1, I want to set the stage just a little bit. Uh, Luke is one of the four Gospels, as we know, in the New Testament one of the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, But the time between the last writings of the Old Testament and the appearance of Jesus in history is important. It's known as the intertestamental period, which is just a big word that means between the Testaments. Uh, And it lasted from about the prophet Malachi's time, And uh, he wasn't an Italian prophet, it's not Malachi, Uh, it's Malachi. Uh, It lasted from about his time, about 400 BC, uh, to the time when uh, John the Baptist started preaching, about uh, 25 AD. Some call this the 400 silent years, because there was no prophetic word from God during this time. Malachi ended, that's the end of what we call the Old Testament, and about 400 years pass before John the Baptist comes on the scene. But during this time, the political and religious and social atmosphere of Israel changed significantly, and in numerous ways and times. And a brief look at history reveals a few important things about this time period. I thought I'd mention a few, and I jotted some notes down. But Initially, Israel was under the, the rule and the control of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire allowed the Jews to practice their religion with very little interference, actually. They're the ones who even allowed them to rebuild the temple, and go back and and worship at their temple. But this time of relative peace and contentment was kind of just the calm before the storm. Um, Just prior to this, Alexander the Great, maybe you've heard that name, he brought Greek rule to the world and kind of spread the Greek rule everywhere. After Alexander died, Judea was ruled by a series of successors, without going into too much detail, one of whom, however, is the one who overthrew the rightful line of the priesthood in Israel and desecrated the temple, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, uh, Eventually, the Jewish people resisted. This led to the the period of the Maccabean Revolt, if you've ever heard of the Maccabees. Uh, That brought with it war and violence and infighting. Um, And around 63 BC, Pompey conquered Israel, Pompey of Rome. And he put Judea under the control of the Caesars. And this eventually led to Herod being made king by the Romans over Judea. And during this whole span of the Greek and Roman occupations, two important political uh, and religious groups emerged and rose up. And we know them as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, the events of this period, they did really set the stage for Jesus coming onto the scene. And they had a profound impact on the Jewish people because they were despondent. They were despairing. They were conquered, they were oppressed again, their hope was running low, and their faith probably even lower. And they were convinced that the only thing to save them and their faith would be the appearance of the Messiah. After God delivered his final message through the prophet Malachi, he paused in his communications through men for over 400 years. His silence must have been deafening. (laughs) Just like silence can be deafening to us at times. In our world today, we're afraid of silence. I think it's okay to to admit that. We live in this state of perpetual, instant gratification. (laughs) We want what we want, and we want it now. And that includes when we want an answer. We don't like it when we feel God is silent. And we translate that into our interactions with God. We can't stand the silence. And we can't stand the silence because we don't know how to wait. I'm only, well, let's say 40-something years old. <laughs> um, maybe what might be considered one generation, if you're talking about generations. But imagine not only one generation of silence, or two, or three but 10 or more. Generations, over 400 years of silence. I was thinking this week, that would be so silent, it might be considered loud. A definite pause for sure, and long enough that whatever was brewing was going to be pretty big. God's silence was a part of His plan. He had spoken before many times through many different people, but now he was preparing to speak something new. And the pause added this incredible emphasis to something that was going to be like a monumental revelation. And of course, we know that. We're looking back at it. The 400 years of silence would be broken by the greatest story ever told, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells the story of how hope came. The story of what what I'm calling the way of hope. And not only for the Jews, but for the entire world. Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy was anticipated and recognized by many, not just the Jewish people. People who were seeking. Even Luke himself, if you can remember, I mentioned we're going to be in Luke. Luke himself was not Jewish. And I think it should be noted that though God may have been silent during this time, He was not inactive. And that can be true for us today too. Though God may seem silent, He's not inactive. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And maybe you've heard this verse. As he writes, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. The phrase, when the fullness of time came, tells us that God was getting ready for the most significant person and event in all of human history, the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, into the world. And this is what we find ourselves reading about in our passage for today's visitation. In chapter 1 of his gospel, Luke introduces the first character in this story of hope, Zechariah. And we're going to take a look at the first few verses, but Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5 through verse 10. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now, I had mentioned that there were three ideas from the main characters in Luke's account of this first visitation. Luke had begun his writing with a fine Greek literary style in the first four verses, which we didn't read. But here in verse 5, where we begin today, the language suddenly takes a, a more Old Testament flavor, you might say. The stylistic change is used by Luke to bring readers into the world of the Old Testament and of Judaism. Remember, Luke himself is not Jewish. And he's using this character that he introduces, Zechariah, to show us that God's priest represents the righteous remnant of faithful Israel. The remnant were Jewish people who were anxiously awaiting the coming of their Messiah throughout this entire period of silence. And Zechariah is a priest. And it's mentioned that Elizabeth is also of priestly ancestry. The names themselves are also important. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Elizabeth means my God is an oath or my God is an absolutely faithful one, depending on how you translate it. And Luke wants to introduce his readers to the Old Testament people of God and also to the promises that God has made, setting the stage for the fulfillment of these promises. And the fulfillment begins with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. This is the beginning of the way of hope. And at this time in history, As Luke mentions, there were 24 divisions of priests in Israel. And each division, they took turns serving for one week at a time, going into the temple and doing their priestly duties. And Zechariah was a priest in the division of Abijah, and he was married to Elizabeth. They were said to be upright or blameless in God's eyes. This doesn't mean sinless Uh, because we all do things (laughs) that are not not according to what God wants and wrong in God's eyes. So not sinless, but blameless because they followed God's laws and His regulations. It's also mentioned that they were childless and past the natural age of having children. And to the ancient readers, this would seem like a big contradiction. Children were considered to be a great blessing, maybe the greatest blessings from God. And righteous people like Zechariah and Elizabeth should have been blessed with children. The idea that they were both older, it also tells us as readers that their situation really wasn't going to change. Being childless in their old age would have been painful. And yet, throughout this, they remained faithful to God and to their duties. Now at the temple, each morning, one of the priests would enter the holy place and offer incense, burning it to the Lord. And the offering of incense was considered a great privilege. And a priest could really only do this once in their lifetime. And many of them were never chosen, never had that opportunity. So it's really a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, literally. And it's in this setting, as Luke continues chapter 1, that he tells about what we're calling the visitation. We're going to continue, verses 11 through 17. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So for 400 years, The remnant had been there, waiting, praying, going to the temple, seeking the Lord through prayers, through tears. And finally, God spoke. And at this time, God didn't have prophets to speak through like He did in the Old Testament. So He used His servants, the angels, to begin sharing His message of the way of hope. And Luke uses this character to show us that God's messenger reveals the perfect plan of Almighty God. There is a plan. Now, angels are spirit beings who live in God's presence, and they do His will, and they carry out His work on earth. And as you look throughout Scripture, you can see a variety of things that the angels do. They bring messages to God's people. They protect God's people. They offer encouragement. They give guidance. They carry out punishment They patrol the earth, and they even fight the forces of evil. But Luke gives us no description of this angel. He simply tells us that he stood at the right side of the altar of incense. But it's important to know that this was not a dream. This was not a vision. The angel was a royal herald of God who appeared in visible form and spoke audible words to Zechariah. And Zechariah responded, as you and I probably would have. Startled. (laughs) Gripped with fear, Luke writes. But what we see in this visitation is that it, it is intrinsically tied to the gospel. It's important to know that the angel came not simply to announce the birth of John, but to make clear that John was to live his life as the forerunner of the Messiah as one who would bring the knowledge of salvation and forgiveness to Israel. And in this way, the message of the angel points to the way of hope. And with the introduction of John, Luke is also showing us that God's forerunner renews the heartfelt hope in the coming Messiah. Hope. It's important. In our passage that we just read verse 17 is important and it stood out to me. Just earlier this week, it kind of, kind of jumped off the page and I added a thought or two as I was reading and studying. It mentions the spirit of Elijah and the idea of turning the hearts of the fathers to their children. We probably don't think too much of that. But the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, it ends with these two verses. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. See... I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's the ending of Malachi, the last two verses of what we call our Old Testament. And this is a really important part of understanding the significance of the message the angel brought to Zechariah. Because Zechariah would have known about this from the scriptures, as a priest, and from Malachi. And the angel brings a declaration from God out of this silence. And it ends with these ideas as written in Malachi. In light of this, let's see how our visitation story continues. Continuing in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and will not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, and he returned home, after this his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in, sec- in seclusion. Excuse me. The Lord had done this for me, she said, In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. You might think that this man, Zechariah, born of a priestly tribe, described as righteous before God, would have been delighted about seeing an angel. But when God intervened in his life personally, he was afraid. He was troubled. The angel came with good news Your prayer is heard. And Zechariah would have remembered from Scripture who Gabriel was, and he would have known the importance of this message because it was Gabriel. Gabriel is one of the only two angels that are mentioned by name in the scriptures. And also because of this reference from Malachi, as I had mentioned. But Zechariah didn't believe it. His response shows that he wanted more than the word of a heavenly visitor. He wanted a sign. How can I know this will happen, he asks. I look at this and I think, really? (laughs) I mean, really? Come on, man. You have a visitation from an angel next to the altar of God in the temple. You have the message from God breaking the silence that you would know about from the reference in Scripture. The ideas from Malachi. Malachi. And you ask for a sign. You ask for something else, something more. I think Zechariah's response shows that he saw only the obstacles. And that part I can relate to that's a part of my personality Uh, when something comes my way and and an idea comes forward um, my mind automatically goes to well here's some of the reasons why that may not work (laughs) uh, so so that part I can relate to as Zechariah sees the obstacles but his unbelief ultimately results in his punishment and in this case Zechariah who I'll say should have known better (laughs) doubted the angel's words And he asked for a sign. sign. And if you think about it, Zechariah received his sign in the form of his own punishment. Silence. Imagine that. A preacher who can't talk. (laughs) And there's not much for a silent priest to do, but go home. So he finished his duties, and he went home. Silent. Silent. Silent about the visitation. Couldn't tell anybody about it. Silent about this way of hope that he had heard about. Couldn't tell anybody about it. And this was a few years before, you know, texting and emailing. (laughs) So he couldn't really write about it either. They didn't carry around pads of paper even like we can now. So he went home silent. And Elizabeth became pregnant. And then a season of preparation began. For Elizabeth, she prepared to have a baby. Zechariah, I think, had some preparing to do himself. He had nine months to do some spiritual work, but as he lived in silence, nine months for a person of words to be silent, nine months to ponder the meaning of what he had seen and heard from the angel, nine months to understand what God would be doing with their son, whom the, name, whom the angel said, by the way, to name John. Zechariah didn't even get to name his own son. That's a pretty important thing, I think, for family lineage back then. It can be today as well. I would imagine it's even especially more important for a family with both sides of their family coming through priestly lineage. And he doesn't even get to name his own son. I, I, I think there are some takeaways for today here in Luke's first visitation story. Luke starts at the beginning to show that this forerunner was not an ordinary person. Sovereign God, the Lord Almighty, had ordained and ordered his birth and his life. God sends his angel beforehand to predict this pregnancy rather than sending him afterwards to explain it. And I think this is because God wants to demonstrate unmistakably who's in charge here. He is. This wasn't an unusual coincidence that God happened to realize and then decide I'm going to, you know, jump in on. This was ordained and ordered by God's sovereign will. And things had been silent for, for quite some time. But I think we can learn to remember that God works sometimes in humanly impossible ways this was a humanly impossible birth God works sometimes in humanly impossible ways and for some it might be possible to demand too much evidence before you believe God's promises that's where Zechariah found himself now don't get me wrong it's, it's not wrong to want evidence for your faith uh, but believe, our belief should not be groundless. It should be grounded in things. But I think there can be an evil in, in demanding signs beyond what a humble and open heart should. And that can serve as a warning to us, and maybe even our next takeaway. Don't demand too much evidence before believing God's promises. We want to remember that God works sometimes in humanly impossible ways. We also don't want to demand too much evidence before believing God 's promises. Zechariah was a priest, and he was one who knew the promises of God and one who taught others about the promises of God as a priest. And he was doing God's work, and he should have believed the angel. I mean, this was an angel, (laughs) but he didn't. But is that really different sometimes than us, than you and myself included? We have God's Word. We have the Bible. We've heard a lot about God and a lot about the Bible, and we pray, and we even know some of the promises. And yet when God speaks, and these days he speaks through his word, when God speaks, sometimes we don't believe it. Because it doesn't make sense to us. Maybe we're more like Zechariah than we think. And we doubt God even though of all people, we should know better. And so if we're looking for answered prayers, we need to remember God works sometimes in humanly impossible ways. We need to not demand too much evidence before believing God's promises. And we need to be open to what God can do, even in seemingly impossible situations. Being open to what God can do. In what ways might you and I be like Zechariah? We look good on the outside and we might do all the right things. Some people might describe us in that same way as Zechariah, as blameless, the word that Luke used. Yet in some ways, maybe we're lacking a little bit of faith because we fail to believe the promises of God. Have you given up believing that God does have a purpose for you? Right here, right now, today. I'm a huge believer, and with God, there is no plan B. He doesn't set us aside for something else. Have you given up believing that God does love you, that He has a plan for you? Have you given up believing that God is living within you and desires to know you, the real you, just as you are? Have you given up believing that God does speak through His Word? And He does speak through His Word. I once heard someone talk about God's Word. They said, if you want to hear God speak, read His Word. If you want to hear Him speak audibly, read it out loud. (laughs) but I think there's some truth to that because God speaks through his word. Have you given up believing that God has called you to make disciples and to share them with others and to share the hope? And I think there's another thing to remember if we're looking for answered prayers. And this may become our our final takeaway, at least for today. So we want to remember that God works in sometimes in humanly impossible ways. We want to not demand too much evidence before believing God's promises. We want to be open to what God can do, and we must wait for God to work in His way and in His time. And I know, we hate waiting. We do, even as adults. (laughs) We don't like waiting. As I mentioned earlier, we want what we want, and we want it now. And when I was younger, my dad used to talk about that phrase I mentioned earlier, that instant gratification. And I understand it more now (laughs) because it's true. But don't let impatience or unbelief ruin a joyful walk with God. We should anticipate God working in our lives. We should pray that He will accomplish His will in our lives today. We should look for occasions to praise Him for what He's doing, always remembering that God's power is not confined by our narrow perspective or bound by our limitations that we put on Him. And I think that's a little bit of what Luke shows in this visitation story. That's our first visitation. For the rest of the visitations, we're all going to have to be patient and wait just a little bit. And I would encourage you to make sure that you're here these next few weeks as our series continues but also as we prepare ourselves through this Christmas season of Advent to experience the Christmas story with fresh eyes and fresh hearts and a renewed hope.